Amen. So if you, if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn in them with me, I encourage you to turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. So we're going to be taking a brief break. Uh, for those of you who are regulars at Old Cutler, I have been uh, preaching through 1 Corinthians, which I'll pick back up uh, in a couple of weeks. Today and then next Sunday uh, will be in our mission festival. And so I will be um, preaching sermons that are specifically related to that. Uh, John chapter 20 is our text beginning in verse 19. And I'll read down through verse 22. And afterwards, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit, but you'll, you'll see it actually when we're reading the text while I'm in, why I'm in this passage today. But beginning in verse 19, it says this, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And this is the word of our God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching. And of course, may he bless us all as we hear and respond to his word this morning. So I, my beginning in ministry was in missions. And so I, I love mission festivals. I love preaching at mission conferences. Uh, I get to do that a good bit and have, ha have done that a good bit in the time that I've been in ministry. Uh, one of the things that I greatly love about being the pastor of Old Cutler is that we still have an annual mission festival, and I get the privilege to preach at, at the mission festival. This year, I'm preaching both the, the opening and the ending sermons, but every year that I've been the pastor of this church, I have had the joy and privilege of starting out the mission festival by telling you a little bit of my heart and longing for missions and how important this is, but also doing another thing that is really important, and that is pressing in on the mission festival theme. We have a great mission committee here at this church, and, and uh, they do a lot of hard work. Uh, and over this week, uh, from today, I mean, actually yesterday when we had our men's breakfast, today we had the great garden party breakfast downstairs. All through the week, you're going to see so many activities and so many opportunities for missionaries to be in front of you uh, to tell you about their ministry. And our mission committee organized all of this work. Uh, and also, they oversee missions in our church, and they oversee the missionaries that we support. They also come up with the mission theme, and they spend a good bit of time uh, every year sort of considering that, thinking about it, uh, talking about it with me, praying about it. And so I don't want us to just ignore that theme. And so I pick up that theme. That's always my first sermon is what is the mission festival theme? And I spend a little bit of time talking to you guys about that theme. This year, it's in verse 21 of the text that we're looking at today, where there Jesus says, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Uh, this is John's version of the Great Commission. I mean, we, we see different versions of that in the different accounts. For example, Matthew, which we read earlier, Matthew 28, there Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, in Acts, Acts has a version of the Great Commission where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Here in John's version, Jesus is saying, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And this commission, if you remember, and it's true, you see it in this text, and it's true in all of them, he gives it to his disciples. He gives it to his apostles. And one of the ways that the church of God has always thought about this is that it has been given to the apostles and then by extension given to the church. And so this commission is our commission. The Bible says a lot about what the church is to be and what the church is to do. But one of the things that we need to hold very dear to us is that the church of the living God is sent. 
It is sent. It is to be missional. Now, we can think of that in a couple of ways. I think we can think of that in relationship to the church, and this language may be a little bit different for some of you, but, the, but one of the ways within our tradition we talk about the church is we talk about the church being scattered and the church being gathered. So then when we talk about the church being scattered, it's a reminder to all of us that we're always church, in a sense. We're always the people of God. And so as we're scattered out, as we go out into our vocations, whatever those may be, the callings of our lives, and it could be the things that these missionaries are doing full-time with their lives, but every last one of us, and this is why we say this, that we're all missionaries, is because all of us have been called. All of us have been put in place by a sovereign God into vocations. Wherever you are, wherever you are sent, you are called to be God's man, God's woman, God's boy, God's girl, wherever that may be. And so in a very real sense, we are all to be God's missionaries in the world. I think this also applies to how we think about our church gathered. And when we talk about the church being gathered, we're talking about what we do when we worship, what we do when we gather for discipleship and Christian education, what we do when we gather for fellowship, that there's to be a missional component to that. Now, don't misunderstand me here, because I'm not saying, as some in evangelicalism have talked about, seeker-sensitive kinds of things. That's not what I'm talking about. When I, I talk about we are to be missional even as we're gathered, I think what that means is this, we are to worship the living God, but as we worship the living God, we need to always recognize that we are, in fact, an outpost of the kingdom of God, that in all that we're doing, we are proclaiming the kingdom of God, and we do that even when we gather together, and when we gather together, there should always be an expectation that we have, that we'll have folks that are in this place, and here today, I, I hope so, that are not believers in Jesus Christ. And so through this time that we have an opportunity to do, even as we worship the living God, as we call others into worshiping of the living God. So we are always sent. We are always sent. We are always to be missional. Now what this text does is it helps us to think of three ways that needs to manifest itself. Three ways that we need to see that expressed in the church. And so I'm going to tell you what they are, and then we're going to briefly walk through each of them. The first thing is that we are sent with peace. The second is that we are sent with purpose. And the third is that we are sent with power, okay? We're sent with peace, purpose, and power. And we need to remember these things that Jesus declares here to the disciples. So the first of these is this idea that we're sent with peace. And this is very clear at the beginning of the text. Notice it says, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. Now we, can, we know the setting, especially if you have your Bibles open, you see it. This is the, the setting of this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then when the text tells us of that day, the first day of the week, it's talking about the first Easter Sunday. And this is happening in the evening of that first Easter Sunday. And the disciples, even though the word was starting to spread, as you may remember that Jesus was alive, it tells us that the disciples, they were still afraid. It says they were, they were together, they were locked behind closed doors because of fear of the Jews. And what they were afraid of, it makes all the sense in the world to one degree, it, although they wouldn't have if they got the resurrection, but to one degree you can get it, right? They were afraid because they had associations with this Jesus who was crucified. And, and they were thinking about the repercussions that have come upon them. And so then all of a sudden in this room that the doors are locked, shut and locked, Jesus appears. 
Now, this says something to us about, about either this being miraculous in, in ways we don't clearly understand, or it says something to us about Jesus' resurrection body and the way that it was different than his body leading up to his crucifixion. That this was his resurrected, glorified body. And, and, and that body, in some ways, was different. Who knows how this happened? Did he go through the doors? Did he walk through the wall? Did he just appear in the room? I don't know because the text doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us is that all of a sudden, Jesus is standing right there. And he says, peace be with you. Now, you can think of that peace as being, first of all, maybe a greeting, right? This is, I mean, a first century Jewish greeting. It's a greeting that, that Jews use to this day, right? Or you could think of this greeting as being, you know, peace be with you, being like, Calm down. Let me just think of it this way. If you're in a room by yourself and all of a sudden somebody just pops up, I mean, it's got to be like, ah, right? So that kind of peace, like you can calm down. I mean, maybe it's the kind of peace that would come like because they, they would assume now Jesus, maybe he's upset with, with us and angry with us because, because we basically, you know, abandoned him. And he says peace to that. But I don't think any of those adequately deal with this text. When Jesus says, peace be with you, what's interesting about it is he doesn't say it once. In fact, we didn't read this far down, but in the text, it's clear that he repeats this three times. But in the text that we're looking at today, he says it twice. So if you think about the end of verse 19, he says, peace be with you. And then he goes on in verse 20 to the first part of verse 21. And it he, and he says this, that when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Now think about how that fits together because you actually see a framing here. It's a framing with using the words peace be with you at the beginning, peace be with you at the end, and in the middle is what? The indication of the crucifixion of Jesus. In other words, he says peace be with you and he shows them the signs of the crucifixion. His hands, his side, right? The one who was crucified is now alive in front of them. And he says peace be with you again. This goes beyond just the greeting. It goes beyond just calming down. It goes beyond just, I'm not mad at you. And it's a declaration of something that we all, as believers in Christ, understand. It is that peace that we now have because of a relationship with Jesus Christ who gave himself on the cross for our sins. And that peace is the message that we are called to declare. And it is a message that this world desperately needs. I don't have to prove to anyone here that we live in a violent world. We live in a world of violence that goes from the womb to the grave. And almost anything we see in our world is full of violence. I mean, just consider what has happened this week. And this is an interesting thing because we, 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 we see this happening so much that it almost doesn't resonate with us. People going around just shooting people all the time. It almost doesn't even affect us at all. But in a week, we have had in this nation a woman, and now we, we're used to shootings, but this is like something we've never seen before. A woman walk in a church with her child to shoot and kill people with her child. 
at the parade, the victory parade for the Kansas City Chiefs. You have two people just get in an argument and start just shooting. And the majority of those, only one was killed, praise God for that. The majority of those, those people shot were children. This is the world we live in. My daily prayer life includes prayers about this. It includes prayers about, Lord, bring to an end soon what's happening in Ukraine. Bring to an end what's happening in Gaza soon. Bring to an end what's happening in Haiti. Just one act after another after another, all the violence that we see in the world. And here's how our world thinks about this. Here's how our world thinks about peace. The peace is cessation of hostility. It's sort of laying down the arms for a time. And I, and I, I desire that. I would rather people lay down arms than kill each other all the time. I desire that. But it's not peace and it's not the solution. It's not the answer. The, the reason why we are as, as, as violent as we are, the reason why Cain killed Abel was because we're fallen and broken in our relationship with the only one who is peace, and that's the living God. You and I, believers in Jesus Christ, are the only people in the world that have this message of peace. It can be found in one and one alone, and that is Jesus Christ. We are sent with peace. Secondly, we are sent with purpose, with purpose. Now, if you think about that last, verse of, of last part of verse 21, you get this purpose. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now, this is a, it's a great verse, and it's a great sort of way of sort of thinking about the Great Commission. And it's just sort of back it up to the beginning as the Father. And so the, notice that initiation, the Godhead, the Father. So when we think of missions, it's important that we understand that missions isn't just busy activity for us. It's not something that God just decided to give us to do until he comes back in Jesus Christ. It's the work of God. It has always been the work of God. The Father is a missional God. The Father is on mission. And from the fall of mankind, what we see throughout the Old Testament and the New is this God actually pursuing the world and redeeming the world. And the Father, in his perfect timing, sent his Son. And notice the, the way he says this. Jesus says this. And the, 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 um, the Greek tenses here are important because he says to his disciples, the apostles, this extends to us as even as I am sending you, which is present tense, which has a sense of I'm sending you. It's an ongoing thing, a present ongoing reality. This, this plays itself out, self out even to the church today. All the way to the end, we are to be sent. We're to be sent. But notice it says that the Father has sent me. That's actually perfect tense, which is something that's happened in the past that has an ongoing reality to it, right? So if you think about this, then what it's saying is this. As the Father sent me, so the Father did send Jesus over 2,000 years ago. We can look back on that as a historical instance of Jesus, the Father sending his Son into the world. But then that has ongoing reality to it. It, it doesn't just stop. It's not like the Father sent him and it just stopped there. He sent him and there's this ongoing way in which he's sending him. Now what this does is it, it critiques a particular way of thinking about missions. And here's what it critiques. It critiques an idea that missions is God the Father sending his son. The son comes to the world. He lives, dies, and rises again. And then he ascends into heaven. And then that's part one. 
But then part two is when Jesus tells us, now you go into missions, and then that's just the second part of it, and we do this missions all the way up until Jesus comes again. A better way of thinking about it, based on what Jesus says here, is this, that the Father has always been involved in missions, that he sends his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for the purpose of missions, and that we are now a part of it. It's not two things, it's one thing. That we are on Jesus' mission. That we are the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus Christ. Now, with that being the case, it is very important that we ask a basic foundational question. What then did Jesus do when he came into the world? How did he engage the world? And I will answer that in two ways. First, there were no limits to what he did. He moved towards anybody. Jesus moved towards the broken and the needy and the hurting and the outcast and the diseased and the rich and the powerful and the corrupt, and the Jew, and the Samaritan, and the Gentile. There were no limits, nor should there ever be with us. There's this Christian artist, I told you guys once before, I like Christian rap, so I've told you. Just a reminder, this artist, his name is The Truth, not The Truth, because that wouldn't work. It's The Truth, The Truth. <laughs> he has a great song, and the song is called Jife. Jife. J-I-F-E is how you spell the words. And it means this, an abbreviation. Jesus is for everybody. You believe that? Jesus is for everybody. We are to move towards everyone. Now, with that, I think there's another question that we have to ask. And in this day and age, it is a critically important question to ask. How did Jesus move towards everybody? And it's very clear in the beginning of John that he came into the world full of, remember what the words are? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Both. Grace is the way that he moved towards all of us who are undeserved. He moved with the compassion and the love of God towards undeserving sinners. All of that is true. And we need to be thankful for that. He sees our hurt, he sees our woundedness, he sees our pain, and he doesn't run from it, he moves towards it. He moves towards it. Grace. He loves us where we are. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to remember something. That love is to reform us to who we should be. And this is truth. And you and I need to make sure we're not trapped in so much of the thinking of our world today that it is inappropriate to speak truth or that it is inappropriate to call sin, sin or that it is somehow wrong to call people to repentance because God is making all things new. If you watch the Super Bowl, and I know you probably got, already know what I'm getting ready to talk about if you watched it or you've read about it or whatever. <clears throat> There's this ad campaign that's become, and I've, I've struggled with it a lot over the time it's been out. And I even touched on it a little bit during the Christmas season without, in a vague way, because I talked about when we were talking about the incarnation of Jesus, I talked about He Gets Us as the campaign. 
I talked about that Jesus didn't just come into the world to get us. He came into the world to, to redeem us. I talked about that. This year as I was watching the Super Bowl and I watched that particular commercial, it really it grieved my heart. And I will tell you why it grieved my heart. It grieved my heart, on the one hand, not to get into the motives or intentions of the people behind it. These are, I, I have heard they're evangelical Christians. I'm not getting there. I'm just getting at what they have done, right? At its best, I think this message, and I'll tell you about it in just a second, is, is misleading. At, at the worst, I believe it's wrong, and I will tell you why. So if you didn't see it, it's about these images of all these people and all kinds of different kinds of people in all kinds of settings. And you'll have to go back, YouTube it, and, and look at it. Super Bowl commercial, he gets us, so you can look at all of it because the, the images in themselves reflect the words that come at the end. But at the end, after we watch it all, and I was thinking, okay, this is like the normal thing they do, kind of, but this is pushing it a little bit more. But at the end, here's what they put on the screen. Jesus didn't teach hate. Jesus washed feet. Now, is that true? Well, yes. Yes. Jesus didn't teach hate. And Jesus did wash feet. Okay? He washed his disciples' feet. But here's the problem with the act. And it's a huge one. We live in a world right now where the mantra of the world is basically this. And it's a, different, it's a different way of thinking about this idea of hate that we have had in the past. In the past, hate is when you, when you disdain someone and then you seek to do them harm, right? That's when you are hating somebody. Now, hate is to disagree. Hate is to say something is wrong. Hate is to say something is sinful. And certainly hate is saying that something has to be changed. That message of he gets us is pushing against this idea. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not being hateful by standing on the truth. You are not being hateful by saying that any of us, regardless of what is dishonoring to God, are called to repent and turn to God. That is not being hateful. I don't care what the world around you thinks it is. In addition to that, I wanted you to hear, want you to hear one more thing about this, and then we'll move on to the last point. Jesus did not just go around washing people's feet. And when he did wash people's feet, it was his disciples' feet. You go back and read this later. In John 13, and that chapter is set up by basically saying Jesus knew. This is at the Last Supper. He knew that his hour was to come. In other words, you will not rightly understand the foot washing if you do not understand that Jesus did it in the shadow of the cross. That all of it, all of it leads to the cross. This is why he washed feet. Because he was getting ready to make a greater sacrifice for him. Why do we need the cross if nobody is sinning? Why would God do an absurd thing like that? And so if you and I, if we are going 
to be Jesus-like in this world, then we move with love and compassion. We don't walk away from anybody. I don't care who it is or what they're doing. But what we tell them is what we have received, what I have received. Mike, this was the message I heard from a minister I don't know how long ago. Mike, you are sinning. And if you keep it up, you are not only going to kill yourself, but you're going to end up in hell. Everybody needs to hear that. Without exception. So we're sent with peace, sent with purpose, sent with power. I'm almost done. I'll be real quick. Verse 22. What does it say? And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a complicated verse. Part of his complication is the fact that Jesus now, on the evening of Easter, is saying to the disciples, or breathing out on the disciples, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. The problem is, how do you put this together with Pentecost, which is later, Acts chapter 2? And so people have come up, and this, this has created a lot of scholarly debate. So people have come up with different ways of thinking about it. So one, one of the ways of thinking about it is that this is John's version of Pentecost, which I think is it's, it's faulty. I think that's really faulty because it, it would say that John isn't actually communicating the clarity of the day very clearly there. So, so I don't think that's it. Some people have thought, well, it's a giving of the Spirit here and then another giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. Remember when they go out and they proclaim the word, they proclaim, they pr praise God with all the people gathered uh, in Jerusalem. Actually, I don't think that's it either. I think the best way of thinking about this, and there's a number of scholars that hold to this, one that you guys will recognize, you know his name well, is R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul, in looking at this, as well as others, looks at this particular text and he sees it as prophetic. By prophetic, what he sees it as is a prophetic object lesson, or let me give you, give you a little more clarity on this, as an enacted prophecy. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that language before of an enacted prophecy, but you'll know about it if you've ever read the Old Testament. Because in the reading of the Old Testament with the prophets, oftentimes the prophets didn't just declare, but the prophets actually did things. They actually did particular things that actually spoke to that prophecy, right? And so there was an action and a message. Now, if this is an active prophecy, if this is an object lesson, then we need to ask ourselves, what's going on here? As Jesus breathes out, which is the language actually taken from creation, the breathing life into man, the language taken from the dry bones passage, Ezekiel 37, when he's breathing life into the dry bones. And now he breathes and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It is an object lesson that is proclaiming what is going to happen at Pentecost and what is true for all of us that we have received. And this is what's going on. Think about this. Jesus is breathing, speaking, receive the Holy Spirit. That it's a, an immediate connection of both the power and the authentication, the authority to do the thing that we are called to do. In other words, Jesus has authorized and empowered his apostles and us to take the gospel to the world. It's a similar thing to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where there it says what? All authority, not some, not a little bit, not even a lot, 
all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Now go, go. Here Jesus is saying, receive the Spirit and go. It's this authorization, this empowerment to go. In other words, brothers and sisters in Christ, from the apostles on through the church, we have always had not only the power to do this task, but the authority to do this task. Now, in saying that, I am not saying to you that we need to go out and lop heads off to make people bend the knee. That's not the point of this. The point of this isn't about our worldly power, positioning ourselves for worldly power. I'm preaching about the cross in 1 Corinthians. That applies to this. But what this means is this, that you and I are sanctioned to this task. And we live in a world, again, that basically says this. Faith is private. Faith is is silent. Faith is for you alone. Faith is for the walls of your house. Faith is for the walls of the church. But Jesus is saying that authority is undermined. That authority is counter to real authority. That authority is counter to my authority. And what I am telling you is go, go, be loud. Tell people about Jesus. Live it out. Share it. Move into the public square. Do you know we live in a country today that is basically declaring this simple message? That the only people that can actually share in the public square are people who don't believe in Jesus. Do you know that religion is always in the public square? It always is. Because a person says that they are an atheist does not mean that they aren't religious. They worship themselves. They worship something else. We move with the authority of Jesus. And that's not only these folks who are missionaries. That's for all of us. To the glory of God and to the advancement of his kingdom. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word, for your working, for all that you are doing in our midst and for these missionaries and their commitment to you. Lord, I pray you bless them and bless us that we would be faithful as we proclaim the gospel and as we go forth in the lost and dying world. Lord, sometimes as we do that, we may face opposition and, and difficulty and rejection and other times we may face acceptance. But regardless of that, Lord, we trust in you, we rest in your word, and we go forth in grace and truth. Use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.